I think that what one factor of what pastors and, and church systems end up doing, whether or not they have bad intentions, is that they find when they use fear that their message is more effectively received. And they find that organically. They don't, they don't have to want it to be that way. It just is that way because of the way our brains are wired. So it's effective, so they repeat it. They are acting on incentives just like everybody else is, and they need their building paid for, and they need this ministry that they really believe in to be funded, and this is how it has worked. So, and also they might themselves be afraid. So there's also, if, if they're actually, and I'm not, I'm not psychoanalyzing any one person here, but if they are afraid of God at their core, if the really primary thing they feel towards God is fear, and I don't mean awe and wonder, as in fear the Lord. I mean, be afraid of the Lord. Then they're going to pass that on because at the end of the day, that's going to be the most primal thing. Today you're in for a treat. So I chatted with a fellow podcaster, Dan Coke, who uses, or who uses, who has a podcast called You Have Permission, uh, which I... You'll hear him talk about the name of this show, but I also like that one because there are a lot of things in life that you have been told that you don't have permission to do, to talk about, to ask, to say, to think, to believe. And that matters a lot when you're talking about God and prayer and the church and science and astrophysics and grief and loss and fill in anything that you feel like you don't have permission to say. And so Dan and I, we talk about eschatology, which is not a topic that really gets a lot of discussion on this show and maybe something that I should address. We talk about atonement and we talk about panic attacks and anxiety and kind of the church's role in that and how psychology and theology kind of all mesh together, why it should matter. And so in lieu of the normal subscribe, rate and review, support the show on either Glow or Patreon, because you know that you should have done that already. Uh, and I have already said thank you for that right now. Thank you for doing that to the person that just clicked the button. Let's get into this conversation with Dan Coke. Dan Coke, welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast, live thank and you. in color. I'm excited to talk with you, man. How are you? I'm good. I have two things to say before we start here. Okay. For patrons who are watching the video on this, yes, it's messy in here. It's always this messy. I don't have an excuse. I can live with quite a bit of chaos. And then the other thing I, I got to tell you, Seth, can I say this at church is just elite podcast naming. <laughs> you just, I don't know about, you know, we could debate everything else, but you've got me beat on branding for sure. No. When I saw that, I was like, oh, damn, that's brilliant. Way <laughs> to go. You did it. You got the name. Well. So good. <laughs> well, thanks. It took a while to come up with that. I had a, actually had a friend that kept responding back to my, I would give him random, hey, what do you think about this? Mm -hmm. What do you think about this? And he's like, trash, trash, no, kind of like it. But a friend with it, very, he's very sarcastic. He's like, you know what? You can't say any of this crap at church. And I'm like, that's it. I'm taking it. That's so the one. I can't really give credit to well, that. He did. Hey, I, and you I told were smart him, enough to, yeah, you saw it. I was like, I'm, what it was. I'm taking that. He's like, taking what? I was like, nothing. I'm taking nothing. You don't, you, don't even, <laughs> you don't even know what you said. Dude, 
It's so much harder to name a podcast than people think. Mm. Uh, having started three of my own, it's hard to name them. Yeah. So what are your three? So I don't really do the other two anymore. Uh, Reconstruct, which I did with a buddy, John, um, and then Depolarize, which was more about politics and psychology and whatnot. Reconstruct. Is that like white with a green logo? Uh, it's no, it's like a classical artwork background mm. and like romantic painting and then white reconstruct. Huh. It sounds or really maybe familiar. Maybe an R. It has different artwork. Sounds the last really familiar. Episodes. Why'd you stop doing those? Yeah. Uh, reconstruct was a two person project and that like the other, my co-host moved to California. I'm up in Seattle and, uh, his interests kind of shifted. And then depolarize, I stopped doing because, frankly, politics just makes me anxious mm. and doesn't really feel like my calling, yeah. if I can call it that. So uh, You Have Permission is like right down the pipe of what I think I'm supposed to be doing. You like it? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you, ha you can tell us you have to like it to do it every week all year long. <laughs> you do it every week, I mean, don't you? Yeah, so I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Just like you must like it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing this. Uh, well, part of it is I really do enjoy it. The other part is I've done it for so long now. I feel like I'd have to have a really good reason to just, guys, I'm done. Like there would have to be, yeah. like I would have to wind it down intentionally. But yeah. I had a conversation with a guy that listens to the show earlier of what kind of my thoughts are for the year, what I want to do. And he's like, so you're not done anytime soon. I'm like, I still have more things that I want to learn. So yeah, let's yeah, do it. Right. In let's do it in real time. I get to be ignorant in front of everybody. This would be fun. It's incredible. I mean, the personal learning and personal growth aspect is is probably the thing that people think of the least. Mm. That is the biggest difference between how important people would imagine it is and how important it actually is. Yeah. It's probably, you know, my number one, number two reason for doing it. But I don't talk about that very often. I don't even think about it very often. But when I do, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have been able to have like, I've been able to kind of talk through everything I think is interesting with people who know what they're talking about. Yes. And I, I just get to do that. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? It's incredible. I agree. And they'll just say yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, everyone is extremely generous with their time. What Dan's not telling you is that is not messy. I showed messy, and I'm not going to put that on video earlier before we started <laughs> recording because um, I'm sitting in the basement full of uh, just stuff. Yeah, but kid toys don't uh, – these are adult toys. These are guitars. That's not messy, snare though. drum. Well, there's like shit on the ground. There's like a blanket <laughs> on this chair. I don't know. It's not. I think my chair is blocking. He's, he's burying the, the, the two lead. Two extra chairs. He's burying the lead. He live plays the music for his intro on his podcast every no, single I, week. No, I. No, I. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I did. I did compose it all though. So if you like you the really? music, yeah. I mean, it, not like yeah. It's there's some tricks of the trade because that's my day job. Is I write music for uh, like commercial music for ads and whatnot. Cool. So there, there's some tricks. It's not as hard as it sounds to do, but yeah, it's all, it's all my music. Let's transition from there. It's like you do this professionally. Um, what is <laughs> what? Who? Whom is Dan Koch? Like, when, it's my favorite question that I ask. Is what makes you you? What do you do? What makes you tick? Um, and we can take that whatever direction you want to. But when people say, yeah. "What are you doing?" What do you say? Well, I am. Uh, I think I've always been a little bit of an exhibitionist, not in the sexual sense, but in the kind of, I'm an open book, here's what I'm working on, respond to it publicly kind of a thing. You know, since I was in punk bands when I was 14, hmm. 
you know, I just, I've always been drawn to that. I think I like, I'm sure I like the attention. I'm an extrovert. I'm a verbal processor. So that's, that's kind of the personality aspect of it that leads one to start three separate podcasts and do it for years. Um, and then in terms of theologically, I grew up kind of moderate non-denominational in California. So I don't have a lot of the baggage that many of my Southern and Midwestern friends have. Um, but I was nearby enough of it to have some baggage. And um, also I have struggled with panic disorder for most of my life. It's in remission right now. I'm, I mean, I'm old enough and know enough now to kind of know how to deal with it. But really like my childhood, junior high, high school, college and twenties, it was a major factor. Um, and so, uh, that's, that will, we're going to talk some more about that kind of stuff. Um, and I'll tell a little bit of that story later. And then I guess the final bit is like nowadays I, I feel, you know, I feel called to a kind of a ministry, but what I have seen in my own experience and in my conversations with, with friends and other people and, and people I met in those years uh, in my twenties when I was playing in a band called Sherwood touring the country, hmm. there is a lot, there are a lot of really good intentioned people, well-meaning people who uh, repeat canned answers to really difficult questions. Mm -hmm. And they do it in the church setting. And because it's the church setting and because the canned answers came from someone with perceived or actual spiritual authority, those canned answers are deemed sufficient. And then of course, as you know, there are people for whom they are insufficient <laughs> and they need another place to talk about this stuff. And, and kind of I, a little bit of fire in the belly for me comes when I recognize just how canned the answers are and that they're not even really that thoughtful a lot of the times. Like if you ask your pastor about penal substitutionary atonement and you're like, did Jesus really have to die to like appease a blood thing? Like the, most of the time your pastor either forgot because they learned it in seminary and forgot it or don't <laughs> even know there are six other atonement theories mm -hmm. and that do not that. And I don't think any of them may be satisfaction theory, but other than that, none of them require blood in like the Israelite sense of sacrifice, needing blood to cleanse sin. But like, they don't even know that. And they they'll say, Hey, that's not the kind of thing we ask around here. Or they'll very politely kind of give you the run around, you know, whatever, you know, you know this. Mm -hmm. And so do your listeners. Mm -hmm. So I try to present probably very similar to what you do, just trying to present uh, different perspectives and just to kind of free people up from uh, feeling forced to take those kind of kind of bad answers to good questions. Yes. Um, my pastor, and I'm going to say it bad because I paraphr it's been a while since I paraphrased it, and I'm sure he stole it from someone else. I'm pretty sure that he's told me that. But he said something similar, and he said it in church one time, of... Unanswered, no, unasked questions are much more dangerous than badly answered questions or something like that. And then he dovetailed hmm. it down to, so for real, like when I say something, you have a question, just, just ask it if you could. And if I can't answer it here, we will get together and we'll, we will talk about it. Um, and when I, I find when I've done that with him, he'd be like, well, I'm going to ask you questions then. Like you, you asked me one question, Dan, and then Dan asked me 26. I'm like, I came here to ask you the questions. Yeah, that's yeah. not how this pastoral thing is going to work. That's not how it should work. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. 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 
Um, Sounds like a good guy. Yeah, most of the time. Most of the time. If don't, only there were more. Don't tell him. He'll, he'll get a big head. Don't, <laughs> don't get tell a big head, him. yeah. Don't tell him. Um, this is public. Well, Seth, I hate to he'll, he'll probably <laughs> listen, and then we'll joke about it on Sunday whenever whenever this releases. Um, so you are also a PhD candidate student. Uh, How does yeah, that work? Yeah. Uh, it's actually a PsyD, but it's a doctor. It's a psychology doctorate. It's just a little bit more focused on counseling than research. Uh, I mean, I'm just in grad school. I just, I'm, I'm like half a year in. So I don't know a lot about psychology yet. I, I do not speak as any sort of expert or licensed psychologist, but five years or so from now, I will be one. And uh, in terms of like academic work, I plan to work at the intersection of psychology and theology. That's something that I'm really interested in. And and then in my own private practice, I plan to focus on people who have suffered some kind of spiritual abuse um, or f- for whom change in their faith or change in their spouse's faith or whatever is something that they want to talk about in therapy. Yeah. So, gosh, when did you email me? I'm going to cheat and look. Two months. Yeah, I don't know. Two months ago. Because I am. Okay. I am. So for those that are just watching or listening. I'm the most tardy person when it comes to email. Like I literally, hey, at least you wrote me back. I well, I literally responded to a guy that emailed me the same day you did today, and I was like, "I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm really bad at email." Um, yeah, it's fine. And I told him, "Here's my cell phone number. Just call me because I'm really bad at email." Um, my wife will tell you, "Is like I think I have 800 unread emails right now. I'm just really bad." I'm at looking email. at mine. My inbox has 3,014 unread emails, so I might have you beat. <laughs> Perfect. I'm not, the problem is I'm not going to respond yeah. to any of those, but I'm also yeah. equally bad at social media and responding to messages. And when people tag me, like, I just, I don't, I just don't, I don't really want to. I, Sounds I, like you're a healthy person is what I'm hearing. That's great. <laughs> Most of it's like, oh, I should say something when I'm done with this. And then I get done with this. Good. I get done with this. And I'm like, oh. what was I supposed to do? Whatever. Yeah. On to the next yeah. thing. Um so you had said in that email, though, that you recently conducted 25 interviews around the topic of end times theology and its relationship to mental health issues. I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't, I understand what those words mean. Um, yeah. But walk me through, because I don't know if any of those have released. Have any of those? Is Or is that? No, I am. I was just working on them yesterday. They will. So we're expecting a baby in about six weeks. What? So I'm not, they may come after. I don't think they'll come before. They'll probably come out in the spring. Um, but yeah, so it, it's four episodes, like a four-part thing. So, okay, what does that mean? What it means is, so obviously, uh, let's break it down. End times, theology. In in particular, we're looking at the kind of zeitgeisty, uh, left-behind series, the kind of stuff that was popular in evangelicalism in the uh, 80s and 90s especially. I mean, it, it started in the 60s and 70s, but... Um, you know, I grew up in that. You, you and I are roughly the same age. I can just tell visually. So, you know, the kind of thing that a lot of us grew up around, right? Okay. I, I have a line at one point, like, if you grew up evangelical, you can close your eyes and picture the cover of the Left Behind book, I black can, background, I can't green remember when, font. Yep. I can remember when right, the first exactly. one came out. So it's basically talking about that vision of the end times, uh, which is also really tied up with Zionism and, you know, all that stuff. And then asking, like, what, what are the mental health implications of basically what that was and how that was lived out in about 20 people's lives? So not all the interviews, some of the interviews were like, um, you know, side material to help me understand the situation. 
but about 20 of them were people's lived stories. And yeah, I probably could have done 10. <laughs> it was a lot more work. Uh, and then eventually this is going to go toward my dissertation. So there has to be like a serious psychological element to that. I don't exactly know what that's going to be. Mm-hmm. But basically, you know, like were people anxious or depressed before they learned about this stuff? A lot of kids... Um, got this stuff from the earliest age possible. They never knew a time in their Christian upbringing where Jesus's imminent return was not a part of it. Uh, what what did it say about God? How did it interact with people's OCD symptoms or their panic attacks? Um, you know, kind of stuff along those lines. So I am 38. Yes. Okay. I'm 36. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, 37. I'll be 38 in a few months. Whatever. Close enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. So similar. Yeah. I can remember reading the Left Behind series and I finished them up when I was at Liberty. And at Liberty, you could, at Liberty University, you could walk across the street to the Barnes and Noble. And then if you're a student and you don't have any money, they have these really nice chairs and you can just read the whole book and then right time right, college yeah, habit of mine absolutely. as well yeah i read a lot of books that way including text oh, yeah. including textbooks <laughs> so no way oh, that's would, elite it, yeah it's probably illegal but um i don't <laughs> i don't know but i just didn't have the money but i can remember reading all those and so you said just a minute ago that you said it, it causes anxiety uh and that many people from a young age don't know any different yeah can you talk about those two things but as opposed to starting with anxiety what do you mean they don't know any different? Like, what are they being fed? Because I feel like a lot of people listening here and because of the emails and the private messages that I get, they are still quasi one foot in because I don't, I think that's still very commonplace. Um, just turn yeah. on any channel of preaching on Sunday morning and all you'll get is fear and trembling and fire and brimstone. And God, you're so lucky that he just didn't quite hate you enough to kill you all the way. And you're the elect. We're going to do it. So can right. can you kind of break that apart a bit, and then we'll dove into anxiety? Yeah. So, okay, there's a couple things. So, for instance, I was introduced to end times thinking in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. But before sixth grade, I knew that Jesus loved me. I knew that he died for my sins. Like, I had a concept of the gospel of the Christian story that did not include the end times. A lot of people I interviewed never had that period So from the earliest they can remember, it's like Jesus loves you, he died for your sins, and he's coming back any day, so you got to get right with him. Like that was baked in for them. And most of those people grew up in the South or the Midwest. Mm -hmm. I think there is a cultural sort of statistical likelihood, right, that's a little different than the West Coast where I grew up. So that's that's one bit about it. The other thing you said was – shoot, now I'm kind of blinking – um, what was the last thing you said before I started? Uh, we could dovetail into anxiety, but a lot of people listening here, they send me messages, um, and they are living in both avenues. Got it. Okay. Right yeah, now, yeah. like their mom and dad still are there and they show up at Thanksgiving yeah. and Christmas oh, yeah. and they're like, I can't talk about this. Oh yeah. So one of the, uh, one of the women I interviewed, she, her family still every holiday, they will say things like, well, yeah, but probably next year we won't be here. <laughs> And then she's like, you said that last year and the year before. And she's she's been awakening to like these unmet expectations. And I asked her a lot of follow-ups about that because that's so interesting to me. And I she's she's actually in Washington. I I I've thought about like asking to join for a family holiday sometime just to like like talk to them a bit. Like, how can you think this year after year when every year you're you're still here and many of you are in your fifties and sixties now? 
Um, but there is something very sticky, I think, about some of those ideas for people. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it because it because it's clearly irrational in like a technical sense. Mm -hmm. But if it's in the water you're swimming in, and if you don't if you don't perceive it as separable from the rest of the gospel, then I think you just go, well, I guess this is just how I'm, you know, you, you hear people say like, live as if he could come tomorrow, but who knows if he's coming tomorrow. I think some people just think, well, this is how you do that. You expect him at any moment, uh, even if you're wrong for your entire life. I tend to think that seems like a bad way to plan for the future. Um, just like kind of common sense but not everybody shares that opinion. Yeah. But the, the other thing you said that I wanted to hit on was uh, basically combining this with like damnation and, and fear of hell and, and um, kind of total depravity style theology. That was also a huge strain uh, in these interviews is like, um, and, and it really varied because it varied on the kind of gospel you were taught as a kid. And this is kind of what we talked about at the very beginning. There are variations. Mm-hmm. Variations exist. So some people had panic attacks about going to hell or family members going to hell or whatever, and they already had that. And And the end time stuff, what it mostly did was sort of multiply uh, the, in, the intensity because it's soon. So one way, I've, one way I describe it in one of the episodes is like, here's a common belief from a teenager in, in one of these scenarios. Hell exists. Some people go there. Some people go to heaven. I need to be right with God so that I go to heaven. But I'm a teenager. I'm not going to die anytime soon. Almost definitely. I have a 2% chance of dying mm -hmm. before my 60s. But if Jesus is coming back, then I may die much sooner. So I really better be right with God now. That's like, I heard that a bunch. Hmm. Out of the 25 people. Was, was it like 23 out of 25? Or what was the other option that wasn't in the bunch of what people would have to think about that type of mind mindset? No, it was more, so of, I don't, so it doesn't really, one thing I should say, I, it's not a representative sample, right. right? So I can't do, I can't with any sort of confidence give any number, like any percentages, because I just did a Facebook call and said, hey, did you have these experiences? If so, I'd like to email, uh, interview you. So- mm -hmm. I don't. I have no idea in the general population. Oh you know, no, yeah. I mean, how many people, people deal with it? Yeah, I mean, of the people that you dealt, that you spoke with, it was quite. It just was quite a range. But I would say the idea of this is very so. At least like five out of twenty had a you could lose your salvation type of a theology. Mm -hmm. So they literally, you know, I somebody said I could be driving down the road, get in a car accident, and if I said shit. Right as I, right before I died, I go to hell because that's an unforgiven sin and I can't die with any unforgiven sin on me. Mm. That's probably the extreme end, mm. but that was the theology that he was raised with. Um, and then all the way up to people who, like myself, would have said, no, I, I never was worried about losing my salvation, but you know, my own anxiety was more about not getting to live my life. Um, and, and, and feeling panicky about that or other people saying, I, I was taught that I couldn't lose it, but there was always things that were said like, but even the righteous will fall away. So that's some of the language that the, mm -hmm. 
and Times people will quote, and they would say like one one person said, even this one person in our life who I thought was such a solid Christian, my mom would say, even that person could fall away. Hmm. So there's a real range, right? I would say pretty evenly split maybe among those type of options. I'm curious, Dan, uh, because you've got, a, a, you said five months, a semester basically of grad school under the belt there? Yeah, I have one um, semester. Under so my you belt already now. have the master's degree in something, correct? Or is this the beginning of the no, master's? No, no, I will be, I will get my master's like year three. So it's something. part of the whole thing. Gotcha. It's a, it's a long, yeah, five year thing. As a college graduate, because <laughs> I want to try to qualify the answer, knowing that as okay, I spoke yeah. to other people that are in the psychology field, they are very reticent to to say something that could be inferred as representing a larger whole, which you've already done once. Yeah. So I just want to make sure that yeah. I give enough caveat there that you're free yeah, to yeah, answer. Yeah. Yeah. So why in your experience and in these interviews and in some of probably some of the thought process personally behind it, why do you feel like, and I'm going to use the word addicted, the church is addicted to this type of gospel? Which type of gospel do you mean? Do you mean specifically related to the end times or the kind of penal substitutionary atonement Calvinism stuff? Uh, Both of those, I would say, relate to fear. So one is fear of stay right, stay in the church, do what I told you, when I told you, tithe 15% if you want to be extra special, you know, and that's... I know that I am general overgeneralizing that, uh, yeah. but I, I, those are some of the churches I grew up in, um, some of the churches I still uh, interact with. Not my church, but yeah. Uh, so there, I think both of those, both total depravity, uh, penal substitution, that's also bound in fear. So I would I would root it down both to fear. So yeah, the I guess I'd say anytime it's fear based, uh, it's because it works. So mm-hmm. here's some real basic neuroscience. Uh, our amygdala and the the part of our brain that we share with lizards and and all you know many mammals all mammals and many other animals is at the base of our brain that is our fight or flight stuff that's our adrenaline gets pumped in and you get the hell out of there or if you live in the modern world and there's nowhere to run and there's no bear there's no actual bear to run from you just get a panic attack and you have to leave the room and you get sweaty palms mm-hmm. and uh you know you, you have to smoke a cigarette if you're a smoker, you know, whatever the thing is, right? So that if that's firing, the, the further away parts of your brain, like your prefrontal cortex where you do planning and decision-making and rational choice, that's not firing. And in fact, your, your amygdala is blocking the route to your nervous system. It's calling the shots and it's like standing in front Hmm. Right. It's like literally getting in front of the rational part of you so that it can't work. So uh, fear is really effective. So first of all, fear is like totalizing. It keeps other parts of your brain from functioning. Is that what that's called? And, totalizing? I mean, I'm just kind of using that. Word. Like it. It's it's yeah, it, it takes over when it's active and it's also really effective. I mean, you could look at political speeches. You can look at whatever whenever you want to really motivate people. Uh, you you make them afraid. Hmm. Um, and so I think that what one factor of what pastors and, and church systems end up doing, whether or not they have bad intentions, is that they find when they use fear that their message is more effectively received. Hmm. And they find that organically. They don't, they don't have to want it to be that way. It just is that way because of the way our brains are wired. So it's effective, so they repeat it. They are acting on incentives just like everybody else is. Hmm. 
mm-hmm. and they need their building paid for, and they need this ministry that they really believe in to be funded, and this is how it has worked. Yeah. So, and also they might themselves be afraid. So there's also if if they're actually, and I'm not I'm not psychoanalyzing any one person here, but if they are afraid of God at their core, if the really primary thing they feel towards God is fear. And I don't mean awe and wonder as in fear the Lord. I mean, be afraid of the Lord. Then they're going to pass that on because at the end of the day, that's going to be the most primal thing. You might think it would be so wonderful to be gay affirming, but all the way back here, God will send me to hell Mm. if I'm wrong. Once you have that thought, you can't, you, you can't go back to the, it would be wonderful to be affirming thing. Yeah. Uh, and I'm using that because I believe you have a T-shirt on that's uh, yeah, directly yeah. Re- referencing that issue. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's broad strokes what I would think, but I'm not a psychologist yet. <laughs> sure, fair enough. That's why I tried to give enough caveats there at the beginning. you said, and I do want to dovetail back into it. So I, here's why it's taken me 27 minutes to get here. So currently my son uh, struggles from anxiety that often is debilitating. um, And we're working through that with him for, and we did counseling for years, just recently started uh, other options. And um, I have seen personally, and for me, it doesn't make any sense, like the, the lack of logic of panic and I don't have a better way to see that. Where I look at it, I'm genuinely baffled at what to say to help in this situation. And so I just usually punt to my wife, and I hope that one of us knows what to do. And usually, she does because I something Dan in my brain just breaks. Where I'm like, I don't understand how this is a thing right now. And because I don't understand how it's a thing, I also don't know how to do anything with it. If that makes any yeah. sense at all, of course. Which then makes me feel like just an awful dad. Um, and maybe in that moment I am being one. That's probably something I need to get better at. But you talked about struggling with a panic disorder. And so if you're comfortable, can you kind of walk through, like, what was that for sure. you? Like, what what is that? My earliest memories of it are in third grade. And uh, so this is before I was introduced to end time stuff. I was, somehow, I got a trigger about thunder. And I was petrified of thunder. I would basically I would get a panic attack if thunder happened. Hmm. Now, the thing about panic disorder that is different than generalized anxiety disorder, which is more like you're a worrywart, like you are a person who's kind of constantly worrying if things will go well. That's generalized anxiety. Panic disorder, primarily your anxiety is about having more anxiety. Uh, So even though I wouldn't have been able to say that in third grade, I can look back on my behavior and say I was worried about having one of these panic attacks. So. I would watch the weather report every morning before walking to school. I would play games on a sunny day with my friend called Let's See If We Can Find a Cloud to sort of calm my own anxiety about that there might be thunder later while I'm at school and I don't have any, there's nothing I can do about it. The goal being no clouds. The goal being no clouds. Um, So it's totally irrational. Uh, And the funny thing is I liked lightning and I liked rain. So it, it wasn't like, you know what I mean? It just... These, that's the way that 
panic works is you get a trigger and then that neural pathway is created and it's a trigger for a long time. I happen now I love thunder. I love thunderstorms, but for many years it would freak me out. And and the irrationality is part of it. Even when I got older and I would have other, you know, in my 20s or whatever, I was still having panic attacks about people claiming to be the antichrist or whatever. And I already knew I didn't believe in an antichrist, but it doesn't matter. The 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 pathway was there already in my brain from sixth grade and eighth grade. And, you know, we can get into as much of that story as you want to, but like it was already well-worn. And so once it's there, it doesn't matter that it doesn't make sense. Uh, and then the other thing that's irrational as well is once the, once the panic attack triggers that beginning of that release of adrenaline and other hormones that has been triggered, those are going to go in and they are going to take their time to work your way through your system my dad, who's a therapist, uh, helped me a lot in my 20s describing it as like, it's like riding a wave. That wave is going to crest and it's just going to take a while, but eventually it's going to subside because it's a chemical thing. You just you now have 50 times or whatever the number is, mm -hmm. more adrenaline than you need in your system. And an hour from now, you'll have 10 times the adrenaline and three hours from now, you'll have two yeah. times the adrenaline, you know, whatever it is. Those don't, those aren't real numbers. Mm -hmm. um, sure. But yeah, it's rationality. Uh, the fact that it's irrational is what makes it a panic attack. Mm -hmm. Often panic attacks come out of nowhere for people. They don't even know what caused it. And that's just well-documented. That happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, well, that's been my wife and I's experience with our son. We were just saying, they're like, yeah. what, just, what just happened there? I want to clarify on that neural pathway thing. So the pathway is for the trigger response of panic, not the thing that triggered the response, but the actual panic highway for lack of a really bad metaphor. Yeah, I actually, uh, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know enough neuroscience. I, all I'm saying is that you, something about it is, is dug in, in a sense mm -hmm. where once you have a trigger, uh, you, any other time you see that thing, it will trigger a similar release of hormones. Mm. Uh, over time, it can drop. Um, but still, if I saw a headline today, you know, this man claims to be the Antichrist and his followers are getting 666 tattooed on their hands, I would still feel like, I just saying that out loud, I felt a tiny bit anxious. Right now? I totally, yeah, not not bad. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> are you good to but talk? But I felt a little bit. Are you good to talk about that a bit? Oh, totally. Why totally. the Antichrist for you? So, yeah, so I think what it is, um, actually, no one's ever asked me that. So that just happened to be something that happened when I was 23. Uh, this guy in, in Miami area was making headlines about claiming to be Jesus. He was claiming to be the Antichrist, but he was also saying that was a good thing. It was very weird. He's a cult leader. He's dead now. But, um, and he was driving around and... Rolls Royces and you know, he was a typical cult leader in a lot of ways to backtrack in sixth grade. I was given a book. I think it was a book. It might've been a fancy pamphlet. It was a reworking of a very famous pamphlet called 88 reasons why the rapture will occur in 1988. This one was for 1996. Mm -hmm. I was 13 or uh, 12. Maybe I freaked out. I was like, Jesus is coming back in five months. I am only 12. I have never 
been naked with a woman. <laughs> I've never had kids. I've never gotten married and never kissed a girl. Yeah. I've, I've never, um, all my, at 12, all my life goals involved women. I mean, you could do um, all of that except for have the baby in five months though. Like you could, yeah. you could, <laughs> uh, uh, I might not have been able to yet, but, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't have a precise, uh, puberty memory, puberty recall, <laughs> but it's not, not required. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, <laughs> so I, I had panic attacks, a bunch of them. I couldn't sleep for, I, I had a hard time falling asleep for a month or two straight. Um, so once I did that for that long, then in eighth grade, we studied end times in my Christian, my evangelical junior high, and we did it for a whole semester in Bible class. So then mm. every other day I have Bible class, I am going, I'm, I'm reworking. I'm just feeling anxious about this and, and white knuckling it. What I should have done is talk to my parents and they could have exempted me from that class. That would have been better. I, I didn't know that then. I hmm. didn't think that, that was an option. Um, and then by the time I hit 23 or whatever and this, this news story breaks, it's just so in there. And also I, the, the larger story of that is I had been drinking a bunch of caffeine and caffeine is not good for people with panic disorder. And, uh, and I was like increasing my caffeine because I thought it was soothing myself and it wasn't. And then the story hits on Dateline or 2020 or something. And I just flip out. I was in L.A. working on a buddy's record. I was co-producing it. I had to leave before it was finished uh, and let the main producer finish it. I didn't sing any of my background vocals. I didn't. I wasn't there for his vocals. Um, I just, it was like one of the worst nights of my life. And so, I don't know, this is a roundabout way of talking about it. But basically, it's, it's once you get one trigger, then you have other ones. In 2008, a year later, I'm off caffeine. We're traveling in England uh, on tour, and our manager is with us. And I ask him what he thinks about Obama because it's the election year. And he says he seems like a good guy, but politically I think he's the end of the world. And I had hmm. panic attacks for a week. I mean, it's like it doesn't – I didn't think Obama was the end of the world. Yeah. But hearing someone say that, it reminded me – and then, you know – some people said he would be the Antichrist. Of course, they say that about everybody. Oddly, no one thinks that Trump could be. That's interesting. <laughs> um, but like, you know, so that that kind of stuff would just trigger me. It just it just does. I'm I now understand it well enough that it it won't trigger me for long. Mm -hmm. But once it's there, it's kind of there. And so one thing you may find with your son is that some of the same things might start giving him those attacks. And, and one thing he'll eventually have to learn to do is recognize that those are triggers and sort of work through it, think and exercise his way out of it. I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing to have, but there, but there are a lot worse things. Yeah. You, know? you talked about it being in remission. Is that just basically that recognizing this is happening? I know how to handle this. Yeah. I just mean, I don't really get panic attacks anymore. No. Um, and that's partly therapy and medication. Yeah. It's also, uh, when I do start to get them, I'm just so much more aware of what they are. Yeah. And so I can mentally, I can kind of stop them in their tracks and I have just much better coping skills now that I'm older. And I, I started getting those skills after that episode of 23 and you know, now it's 13 years later and I've just, yeah. I just recognize it um, much more easily now. The, uh, the 25 people, are any of those still engaged in faith 
or did they all just kind of, you know, I can't do this. Anymore. I'm done. I'm so done. Done with all Great of this. Question. I'm going to be with you at Christmas and the rest of the time you shut your mouth. I'm not coming back. Yeah. Great question. I asked everybody that if they're still a Christian today, I also asked them, uh, if, if the end time stuff was a legitimate obstacle to their continuing in faith. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I haven't actually done the tallying yet, but I want to say two thirds, half to two thirds are still Christians. Uh, and uh, low, you know, the rest are not anymore. Hmm. Um, and because it was an obstacle for a lot of them, but not all of them. Huh? Yeah. For me personally, and I've, I need to do an entire series on eschatology. Uh, cause you're right. There is the one Jerry B. Jenkins, Tim LaHaye, Kirk Cameron, um, badly yeah. acted Nicholas Cage remake of Nikolai Carpathia, uh, which is a great name by the way. Um, it's a fantastic, fantastic name. Yeah. Um, but that's only one view of eschatology. There's so many others that aren't um, yeah. pre-tribulation. And it, I should probably do that. The problem is for me, Dan, eschatology holds so little. Like I just don't really care because uh, I yeah. don't see... For me, eschatology, when I was growing up in church, was always used as a way to um, have just as much care for today, but with absolutely zero care for what I needed to do tomorrow as in relation to those that are in community around me. And by community, I mean ecological community, uh, global community, school community, ch- church community, because I've got to make it that right for today and tomorrow will quote unquote worry about itself. Um, versus now I feel more like antichrist is anyone that is acting in a way opposed to the shalom yeah. of God. And even that could possibly probably get me branded as a heretic by a lot of people. And I don't care anymore. Sounds like N.T. Wright to me. Uh, well, he's a smart guy. Um, so... Uh, I don't think he's a heretic, right? People don't think he's a heretic, do they? On certain things, I guess. Oh, gosh. I mean, I think somebody's everybody's heretic, right? Or everybody's somebody's sure. heretic. I don't know how I said that back. Yeah, maybe KJV only people would think <laughs> Wright's a heretic. Yeah. So but everybody is to them. What do, what do psychology and theology have to contribute to one another? Like, why is that something that interests you at the intersection there? Yeah. Well, I guess... The main autobiographical reason is that around the time of the election, or actually probably the GOP nomination, I was like, what's going on here? Uh, this is interesting. Just just kind of that basic idea that like, oh, a lot of these people that raised me said very opposite things about Bill Clinton than they're saying about Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that's an, that is a puzzling psychological phenomenon. And I went to, or or just societal phenomenon, and I found this book, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Somebody must have recommended it to me. And I read that book, and I just had a light bulb moment. I just, I read it, and I thought, this is a better explanation than any theological explanation I might come up with about, you know, using some theological language for why they've fallen from the path or I've fallen from the path or what I was like, no, it's in, in a sense, it's just psychology at work. Now I now would say there's no such thing as just psychology. I think psychology is theological and in, in the sense of it tells us the kind of beings that God created. Um, but I found the psychological answer so much more satisfying in a much more elegant way that explained my experience better. And Yet, 
I am forever interested in theology because I am a person of faith. I have an active faith. I have a prayer life. I, uh, all the things that are most important to me in some way connect back to my relationship with God. Mm. And so if psychology is giving me better explanations, then that is a tool in service of what the things of value, right? Which are theological in nature, at least, you know, they're not systematic theology or whatever, but they are, they are theological in that they relate to the ultimate things. So that's kind of one way of saying it. You brought up three things that I hadn't, well, one of these I had planned on asking you, but three, two things then I guess, whatever, um, that that I want to ask you because you brought them up and they were words that I wasn't expecting to get into today. One of which is a, a, a definition of the gospel, because you talked about the gospel without this specific end time theology. And so I do want to know what that is. And then you've also brought up the word atonement, which I've done, I think, an episode on atonement way back, like episode 20, for those that want to go in the Wayback Machine. Although it is still probably the number two or number three episode of the entire podcast. Mine is too. Yeah, mine's up there. Yeah, the, yeah. the top 10 are hell, hell, atonement, hell, hell, and then NT right because it's NT right. I just did this, and I, I don't do a lot of repeated ones, but mine's uh, gay-affirming, gay uh, non-Christians can be saved, and then two purity culture in a row. <laughs> I did do two on that, and that's three and four. Yeah, but uh, atonement theories, which was one of my first ones too, is in the top five or six or whatever. Yeah. For Dan Koch, what is the gospel then? If you're going to say... This is not, this version of the gospel with this end times theory about here's one of the reasons that you get saved so that you don't, you know, so that you don't burn in hell or whatever, how, however that's going to be preached, you know, don't, don't get left behind, twinkling of an eye, et cetera, et cetera. What is the gospel? Well, so the one that I was taught before I was exposed to end times thinking was just kind of standard, you know, penal substitution, although not in a Calvinist strain, we were... We were a non-denominational church. I'm sure there were some Calvinists and some non-Calvinists in the church. I don't think any of the staff members were Calvinists. That, that was never kind of heavy. So just kind of a standard for spiritual laws kind of a thing. Um, if you know what those, well, you know, there's the chasm. Jesus is the bridge. You go across the bridge so you can be with God. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was given then. But I, it sounds more like you're curious what I think it is now. Yes. Is, Okay. Today. Yeah. Um, so in terms of atonement, there are two different ways of thinking about what the atonement signifies. Uh, and maybe you could say it's both, but it could be one or the other. The first camp is it does something ontologically, metaphysically. There is in some sense literally a separation and it accomplishes removing the separation. So that would be, that's one way of, of seeing the atonement. And that separation the is me and the divine, or me, me and God. Me and the divine, okay. yeah. So there is something that happens with Christ's resurrection or the moment that someone, you know, accepts Christ or something where a status is shifted in the cosmos in some sense, in the mind of God in some sense. The other view is that the atonement is the atonement shows us what God is like. 
So God wants to explain to humanity what God is like and the atonement or the or the events that lead to atonement, you know, so the death and resurrection or what have you, uh, the incarnation is a big part of that, are, are sort of God trying to tell us what God's like. I'm more in the latter camp, um, and that there's kind of complicated reasons for that. Um, one of those reasons is that I don't, I can't really understand, I've never understood the blood sacrifice thing. I've never understood how a God who could create a universe possibly many universes, uh, each containing billions of galaxies, which each galaxy has billions of stars in it, would like require blood on this planet made from red blood cells to, you know what what I'm saying? It just seems like the kind of thing that early people would have thought was true, but probably isn't true. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be a chronological snob or anything. It's just, they didn't understand the size of the universe. They didn't understand what blood was, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, I'm with you. It's beautiful poetry uh, in that sense. Um, and then the other thing is I think about people on other uh, creatures on other planets, you know, like I don't, I can't imagine that like Christ's resurrection on earth affects some sort of universal cosmological change on other planets. And there's so many other planets that like there's probably other creatures that God loves given how creative our God is. I don't know that to be true. I don't think there are any in this, in the Milky way, for instance, I'm not like a aliens truther. Um, (laughs) I I think the Fermi paradox is, is true. Like they should be around if they were in the Milky way by now. So they're probably not, but the Milky way is one of billions of billions. Um, or I guess the Milky way is one of billions of galaxies. So, you know, do that math. Um, I feel like I just got real nerdy there. <laughs> I'm with you. So um, I'm, I love it. So first off, sci-fi is my jam. Sci-fi and theology is okay. my jam. Uh, I just finished, a f- uh, in, at the end of November, I chatted with uh, Paul Wallace. He wrote a book called Love and Quasars. The dude is literally uh, an atomic physicist. Uh, yeah. And I think he also teaches at a seminary. Uh, and we talked about that. Um, one of the most mind-blowing parts of his whole book is he tried to give scale just to our galaxy. And he's like, you know, and he gave everything like this is a pea and this is a blueberry and this would be a beach ball. And so he started at the Washington Monument and that would be the sun. And then like uh, Earth is at, I think, the Abraham Lincoln Memorial and it's like the size of an acorn. And then he's like, you know, the next closest star, Proxima Centauri, I think is what it's called, or Proxima something, is basically on the beach on the west end of Hawaii. Like if you give it to scale... And it's the size of yeah. a beach ball. Um, like that's the scale. And that's just of the closest star in the Milky yeah. Way, full of billions of stars. And the Milky yeah. Way is just one little bitty arm of this entire huge thing that we're... Anyway, so yeah, nerd out all you want. Um, I'm with it. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think the gospel for me is something like the creator of the universe knows and loves you. That's the gospel. And I know that a lot of Christians are not satisfied with that, but I am. I don't think I need anything more than that. I experience that God through the Christian tradition, which includes things like Trinitarian doctrine and the death and resurrection of Christ, and I affirm all that stuff. It's part of the tradition. But ultimately, for me, it all comes down to, wait, God loves me? Mm. God wants to be in some sort of relationship with me? There's just nothing crazier than that or better than that. That's it. Yeah. 
and that's the only real thing I want to make sure if I'm trying to preach the gospel that people understand. Yeah. You know, but I'm not really a, I am an even, I am an evangelist in a sense of just like you are, we do these shows and we obviously care about getting stuff out there. Does this make me an evangelist? Uh, Is that what you're saying? I mean, yeah, you're like, Uh. you are, you are evangelical, small e. Uh. We both just are. not happy with that of... word, or at least what's happened with the word. So <laughs> it's like course, calling me a Browns fan. Who wants to be a Browns fan? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Ouch. Well, it's pretty good being a Niners fan these days. I'll tell you oh, man. I, uh, yeah, I'm a Cowboys fan. Number and, uh, one me and my boss seat. were joking. He's a uh, Eagles fan. And we were joking, you know, who, which one of us is going to lose our way into the playoffs? And I was like, yeah, right. that's about right. Um, yeah, that's that was rough for you guys. Final man. question, and answer it however you want. And there, there's a method to the madness of this question, although I don't know I've said it out loud why. And so I plan to interview other faiths intentionally this season, like yeah. cool. as many other faiths as I possibly can. Um, and I have a certain set of questions because the goal is to not be stupid and to learn something because um, I don't think I have any stranglehold, nor does my faith tradition, on truth or other facets of God. And so I'm going to ask them, when you say the word God, what is that for you? And so I'm going to ask you, like if you, if someone said, yeah, I I understand you saying God knows me, but when you say God, what are you actually saying as best as you can say, which I'm aware of how big of a question that is. Yeah, it, it's a, it's, it's a lot. Um, God is, (laughs) God is the entity, mind, agent, whatever you want to call it, that is capable of bringing the universe into existence and that is present to every creature at every moment, uh, luring us toward rightness, towards goodness, towards love and beauty and justice and um, pervading and, I don't know, like, like that old classic doctrine of, of God sustaining the universe at every moment is, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I, I would consider myself a panentheist at this point, which is that like everything in the universe is within God, but God is also more than the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, yeah. Or, or, you know, or I guess it's hard to know what to think about matter and I don't, you know, all that stuff. So. I'll just say that. I love it. Is that a pretty good answer? No, it's your answer. They're all going to be great answers. So. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But I felt if I was, I didn't want to, just a little side note, I didn't want to, I wanted to make sure that listeners of the show knew that I wasn't asking people that weren't Christian. Yeah. You want to ask about them God. Too, I want to make sure, too, hey, yeah. we're going to be fair here. Um, yeah. And I'm actually really excited to see what everybody's answers are. So uh, I think that's so cool, man. I, I'm a, I am what I, call a robust pluralist. So I, I think that God is absolutely interacting with people in other faiths on the regular, uh, just like he's interacting with Christians. And so I think that would be very cool yeah. uh, to, to learn more about that. It's a little outside the scope of my own show, so maybe I'll have to listen to yours to, you sh- to get you that. Sh- yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, that should there, There's a few that are already recorded for January, and so I didn't cool. ask in those, but whatever, I can... I can change the fiscal year. I'm the CEO. Um, I can do what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a yeah. big fan of puns, and so here we go. I want to make sure as yeah. people hear the last of you that um, I give you and, and just let you know you have permission to go ahead and tell them 
where they need to go to get a hold of more of you. <laughs> yeah, the podcast is called You Have Permission. You can get it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, youhavepermissionpod.com. Um, yeah, that's that's about it, man. Perfect, perfect. Well, Dan, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Seth. I want to read you something from Dan's website and you'll hear this as you go down and you click subscribe to his podcast because I listened to about 15 of his episodes before I chatted with him and they're really good. Dan is a great conversationalist and he has some really important questions. Here's what he says. For anyone that finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, and so many other things, so many things that you've been given bad answers to, you need to know that those are important questions. And so you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I really love that. And if you listen to his show, you'll hear him say that at the beginning of each episode. But I think that's important. What we believe about what happens when we die absolutely matters. It matters for then, and it matters for now, and it matters for the way that we treat one another today and tomorrow. How that affects us mentally matters. How it affects our church mentally matters because as it affects us each individually, that is how it's going to affect the congregations and the church globally for everyone else. How we engage in thoughts about the end times are deeply important. So I really hope that this scratched an itch for the beginning of some of you. I know I think it did for me, that I really need to dig in more into the concepts of eschatology end times. Because to be honest, I haven't given it much thought in many, many years. I read all of those left behind books and listened to a lot of those sermons. And the left behind books were entertainment for me. And I really enjoyed reading them, but they didn't really have any hold over me. But I realize I'm I'm just one person. I'm going to engage in it further. I don't know when, but I'll try to make sure that I do that. The music from today is, as many of the past have been, from the Salt of the Sound. Their stuff is great. Find links to them in the show notes. They're doing some amazing things. You'll also find links to Dan's stuff in the show notes as well. Be blessed, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week.